Forget frequently asked questions, common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond and become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in fields such as sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Get ready. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Series. I have Eugene B. Chang. Uh, he's a Martin Boyer Professor, Department of Medicine, Associate Section Chief of Research, Section of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition at University of Chicago, uh, working at the Microbiome Center, and we're going to be talking about that project there. So, Eugene, thanks for coming. Um, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So you're part of the, the large, the gigantic initiative, of the uh, Human Microbiome Project, right? Yes, uh, I, we were uh, part of the uh, first, we call it HMP-1, uh, and uh, we had one of the uh, re- uh, first human um, microbiome project, uh, demonstration projects, and also uh, a, one of these other awards to help develop some of the technology. What was the goal of the human microbiome project when it was conceived? Ah, okay. So... Uh, the Human Microbiome Project was uh, an NIH initiative. Uh, it was really to promote research in an area that uh, uh, was just beginning to uh, emerge. And um, the, uh, I think it was at that time that we began to use uh, what we call cultivation-independent uh, techniques. This involved uh, DNA sequencing and uh, just about that time, uh, a, a number of DNA sequencing platforms uh, were coming out that allowed us to look at complex microbial communities in a very, very unique way. Um, previously, uh, investigators had used uh, traditional cultivation approaches, which are limited because uh, what tends to uh, grow are only things that will uh, survive or um, be able to grow on uh, specific culture media. So uh, we were being very selective. Um, With the new sequencing platforms, we could now look at uh, uh, what kind of microbes were present. And uh, from that, we began to realize the uh, diversity and and the types of uh, microbes that were uh, present in uh, human populations. So the Human Microbiome Project uh, that was supported through the NIH was really focused on several different populations of the United States. Okay. Um, So now uh, the new techniques, is is that uh, what, shotgun sequencing or metagenomics so we could see everything that's Uh, in the sample? So at the very beginning, we didn't have shotgun metagenomics. we had uh, the ability to do uh, something called um, 16S ribosomal RNA amplicon, uh, which is really a technique that looks at a single gene that uh, 
through evolution and uh, as new populations or strains emerged, uh, we could detect slight changes in the, the DNA of this particular gene. And by doing so, uh, it became sort of like a fingerprint that we could identify uh, specific taxons in a complex microbial community. And um, through that, you know, somewhat uh, uh, rudimentary technology at that, uh, looking back on it, uh, we realized that, you know, people, um, that the microbiome among individuals in a population varied so considerably such that uh, you could, uh, your microbiome would be completely different to, uh, to the microbiomes of other individuals. And then we began to realize that the microbiome that you had was actually very unique to you and could almost be used to identify you, just like, uh, you know, a lot of the forensic techniques we use. We, we probably could have identified individuals through their uh, microbiome uh, through the 16S uh, amplicons. Um, Metagenomic uh, sequencing really, uh, and actually informatics uh, came uh, later, and it was sort of at the tail end of um, the first phase of the Human Microbiome Project that people were beginning to look at um, metagenomic data, which is um, different from the 16S in that you're sequencing all the microbial genes that are present in, a, let's say, a clinical sample. And so the amount of information uh, was so much greater. And uh, from that uh, data, you could even get some idea of sort of the functional profile of complex microbial communities. So um, I've heard people say that everyone has a unique microbiome, but um, I also know that there appears to be redundancy it seems like, you know, again, this is my interpretation, but like in our guts, uh, it's like a job center. And, you know, we, we have certain tasks that need to be done and microbes do them, et cetera. But, you know, not just one strain can do the task. So when our microbiome gets disrupted a bit, other ones seem to take up the task. And sometimes it's dysbiosis, sometimes not. But um, if you look at my microbiome versus 100 other people, even though mine's unique, are you still seeing similar strains, just maybe in different amounts? Or like, what? where is the uniqueness according to what you've seen? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, so we're unique in the sense that uh, the, uh, if you look at the uh, composite of your microbiome, I could really distinguish it from, let's say, my microbiome. But you're absolutely right. We share uh, certain uh, groups of microbes uh, that probably serve uh, or provide important functions to us. Um, we also know through uh, some studies that uh, some populations or strains, species, are uh, shared among uh, a population. We call them a, sort of a core microbiome. And uh, uh, I think that those types of microbes are probably essential for certain specific functions that we all need. Now, uh, my analogy to this is like, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the microbiome is sort of like a baseball team. Um, 
to to play the the game, you just need nine players. You need uh, you know catcher through uh, pitcher, outfielder, infield. It almost doesn't matter who plays as long as you have somebody playing that position. So uh, right, you can interchange. Uh, let's say people at first base. So I think that the microbiome is like that. Uh, there are certain functions that uh, we derive from these uh, microbes, uh, and there are probably many types of microbes that could provide the same function. I like your baseball team analogy better than my job center analogy, but yeah, it sounds similar. <laughs> yeah, so it's if similar. You, if, if you um, looked at the microbiome again of like a whole bunch of different people side by side, what constitutes uniqueness, you know, in the data? Like, what are some of the things that were similar? What are the things that were not similar? Can you, you know, express that? Uh, well, you know, so, um, you know, we're, we're similar if we're looking at uh, very high up in sort of the um, taxonomical hierarchy. So if you're up in the uh, phylum uh, class and family level and even genus level, um, these are very broad categories. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're similar. Uh, the analogy here is like if I, I'm in Chicago, right? And, uh, if I, uh, looked at the population, I could probably say, you know, there are, uh, so many people with red hair, so many people with black hair and so many people with blonde hair, right? And so I, I look at that population, but that, that level of resolution is insufficient because you can't say that everybody with red hair is the same, right? And uh, so we, this, this field has been a little bit um, limited because a lot of the technology and a lot of the analysis of uh, microbial data has been at such a high level uh, or I, another way of putting it, at such a low level of resolution. So you can only see like major or, or broad groupings of these microbes, but within the groupings, they could be very, very different. Now things are changing. In terms of the, so, um, in, in terms of the functionality of the groups, would that be very different? Or even though the members yes, of the group would be very different, I, I think, the functionality would be You know, I, I, I think that uh, at the level that most people look at, uh, the functionality, uh, let's say within a, a genus, or even a species, uh, the microbes in a particular species can be very, very different. And um, so I think that it, even getting down to a species level, uh, we have to be careful. We, we can't just say that, okay, uh, one microbe in this species is going to be very similar to my, another microbe that is categorized in the same species. And, you know, unfortunately, that's what has been done. Uh, some people have tried to make inferences about uh, function based off of what we call reference microbes. Uh, these are uh, microbes that are usually in, in somebody's uh, library, and they, they have uh, genomically examined it. But the, these reference strains can be very different from the ones that you actually identify. Even though they may look the same, they're, they're not the same. They can differ vastly at the genomic level. 
well, how would they differ? So it, this, I guess this line of thinking probably led to the whole probiotics movement. Um, but if I take a specific, you know, uh, genera and species, you know, Acerophilus, whatever, you're saying it could be very different than what I think I'm getting? Yes. Yeah, so let's say uh, a probiotic, uh, common probiotic would be uh, lactobacillus, all right? Uh, well, there's so many different flavors of lactobacillus. And if you actually uh, cultivated the strains of lactobacillus, you'll find that there's significant genomic variation. They, they may share certain things, but there will be a significant part of their genome that's quite different. And functionally, you can often see differences in function. And, uh, you know, I, I think that this is something that tells me that we have to do better when we're, lo- we're studying the microbiome. We have to think more at a much higher level of resolution. Uh, we have to think down to levels of, uh, you know, fairly homogeneous populations or uh, at a strain level. And that's hard to do because we, 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 we're just beginning to develop the tools to do that. Now, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, played around with this, and, you know, we, we, we now do uh, shotgun metagenomics uh, almost exclusively because 16S just doesn't give us the resolution that we need to understand what microbes are there and what they're doing. So we actually, from the deep sequencing of uh, microbial population, we, we can actually, through bioinformatic approaches, assemble uh, sequences by, uh, uh, we call a contig assembly. And by doing so, we can actually piece short reads or short pieces of DNA, and we can put them together, stitch them together to see more of the genome. In fact, we can do it in some ways if, we're, if we know what we're looking for, where we can almost reconstruct the entire genome of a particular population. Now, that gets you down to a very high level of resolution, but it's still not high enough. And so what my group has been doing is that we have looked at unique genes within that draft genome that we've assembled from metagenomic data, and we use those markers to then cultivate and identify the strain that we think we're, uh, we, we have found, right? So then to double-check, uh, we have taken that strain and we do what we call whole genome sequencing. That's where you sequence the entire genome of that strain and then we check it back to the draft genome. And if it looks like it matches, then we're sure that we found what we were looking for. So I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but to me, I think that this is the level of resolution that we need to do, uh, we need to get to, because the understanding of what microbes are doing either as a community or what benefits that they provide to us or what what kind of uh, impact that they and contribution they may have in uh, human disease, I don't think it's going to be resolved at a, at a level of low resolution. Go ahead. Yeah, that makes total sense. Go ahead. Well, you know, 
it comes down to another thing, you know. So we're interested in strain level analysis because if you have the strain, then you could test that strain to actually see what that strain does in, let's say, an in vitro or in vivo situation so that you can, it's not that you're describing it anymore, you're really beginning to look at whether this particular microbe or this uh, consortia of microbe has a physiological or pathophysiological impact on the host. Um, I have a question. So if you have a set of microbes, do they act differently in context with each other than they would alone? No, so even if you're able to sequence them down and let's see their whole genomes, when they're yeah. together, uh, do they have like an epigenetic component or are they trading plasmids and trading genes? And yeah. they're, I mean, like, yeah, if you so, have a particular bacteria, when it's in a context with other bacteria, does it completely change? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, you, you know, you point out, I think, one of the uh, challenges to really studying uh, these microbes at uh, a strain level. I mean, they 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 have a certain set of properties if they're all by themselves. Uh, those properties can even change as they begin to replicate and become more uh, populous, right, within a single population. But if you put it in the context of other microbes, a microbial community. Uh, their function may ch- drastically change. And then if you put that into the context of a microenvironment or a macroenvironment created, let's say, by the gut, uh, that they may behave very, very differently as well. So it's very complex, but I think that your point is well taken, that if we're really going to understand uh, these microbes, we have to put them back into a physiological context so that we can really understand whether the properties that are being expressed by those microbes at that particular time, what they're doing. Wait, this is a really tough puzzle. <laughs> so you, yeah. has anyone thought to make a, I don't know, a, a, a colon organoid or like a digestive environment so that you can put in different species combinations and see the interplay? Is, is such a thing in the works, or is it just too complicated? No, no. They, they are in the works. There are several groups working on it. Um, organoids, I think, are certainly a way to um, preserve. They, they organ, for example, human-derived organoids from the gut um, will recapitulate many of the functional and genomic properties uh, of cells uh, from which they were derived and in situ, so they they become living archives of of uh, individuals, and uh, it's a very powerful technology. But most organoids are, you know, not the complete population you would see in tissues in situ, right? They're, they're, if you look at the mucosa of the gut, for example, there are many, many different cell types, and they vary uh, from top to bottom of the GI tract. Um, When you isolate the stem cells, you'll get a certain group of uh, types of cells. These are the lining cells. We call them epithelial cells. But they're not, they don't include like the immune cells or the, what we call the stromal or mesenchymal cells like fibroblasts. And, um, 
But people now are trying to reconstruct uh, the gut. So they're, they're putting these elements together. So they're co-culturing, let's say, the uh, epithelial organoids with immune cells or uh, fibroblasts. And then they're, they're, they're trying to uh, create a situation where they can begin to test, let's say, host microbe interactions or study host microbe interactions in a uh, more complex physiological model. So uh, we're not, you know, this is still not ready for prime time, but we're getting there. I mean, this is a technology that a lot of people are working on uh, because eventually I think we'll need something like that uh, in order to understand, uh, you know, what the microbiome is doing, what the host is doing to the microbiome, and, uh, you know, what the implications of those findings are to both health and disease. Now, the other model that many of us use are animal models. You know, we we use these, uh, we call them notobiotic mice. Uh, uh, So we use mice because many of the inbred uh, mice are genetically pure, so that they're they're clonal copies of each other. And uh, they're... uh, uh, we, we, for example, have uh, a very large facility where these mice are born without any microbes, and they're, we call them germ-free. And um, they uh, are very powerful tools because uh, this is a physiological setting. You have all the components uh, that, let's say, in the, of the gut or the skin or the lung, and then you can interrogate specific microbes, either uh, by themselves or as a consortia or as a, you know, uh, the equivalent of a fecal microbial transplant. Um, As an example, some groups have actually taken uh, samples from human subjects, uh, fecal sample or endoscopic uh, samples, and taken those microbes and colonized the germ-free mouse and they, they, they essentially get a humanized gut microbiome in, the, in this mouse. And uh, while I think that this is a tool that uh, can provide enormous amount of information about uh, what that microbiome may be doing to the, to the mouse physiology, there's always the issue that the mouse isn't a human. Right, so uh, if, if you're looking at, let's say, a human microbiome's effects on the immune system of a mouse, uh, you can only make so- certain guesses or extrapolations of that data to human physiology because mice are the mice are are evolutionarily different from from humans. Uh, but we 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 have been able to learn a lot uh, if in the context and just accepting the fact that there are going to be uh, differences. I think it is the onus is on investigators to actually take what is observed in the mouse with human microbes and then go back to the human and see if the same thing is happening. And uh, so... Quick question here. Um, Has anyone looked at the morphology of bacteria in our gut, for instance? Like, I imagine them as just like a roiling mass of single bacteria that are completely mixed, but 
what if the picture is actually biofilms of same strain species yeah. and they literally do have like little niches and they you know the edges of biofilms interact or i mean what what does it really look like has anyone looked at what's going yeah, on yeah yeah uh, so uh the luminal microbiome may be like a, a mixture that's sort of stochastically uh uh or maybe not stochastically disorganized but at the mucosal surface, we know there's a population of microbes that lives at the mucosal surface that that forms biofilm, and and uh, this is a much more stable population. And if you look at that population, uh, it isn't disorganized. It is uh, it is um, organized in a way that probably benefits both that microbial population as well as the host. Uh, It's quite remarkable. And um, so, you know, it's like uh, if you look at, um, let's say, water pipes or something, you you often develop this slime on the surface of your your pipe. And uh, that slime is not disorganized. That's also, uh, you know, microbes that are in a... uh, biofilm that gives them stability, protects them against a lot of exogenous, deleterious uh, substances that would harm them, but that population is fairly stable. And I think that that, uh, in many ways, represents the, you know, what we always think about uh, as being important to our microbiome. Our microbiomes have to be stable. And they have to also be resilient. You know, if if something comes along, uh, which happens daily, hourly, uh, uh, even uh, minute and second, that might perturb, might introduce a perturbation, that microbiome has to be resilient. It it, it has to take the uh, perturbation but be able to bounce back. That's a very important property of our uh, gut microbiome. So does the um, resistance to perturbation hint at biofilms or some other type well, of structure? Or so, uh, I I think it's complex. Uh, it, it, it's it's complicated. I I think there are multiple factors. Biofilm may play some role, but there there it is interesting about uh, these microbial communities. They assemble in a way that um, they sort of select which. Uh, microbes they want to be with. Uh, there's some mutualism among those microbes, and they band together, and uh, by doing so, they develop a network that is very stable, uh, and they they often uh, support themselves. Uh, if uh, one goes starts to go down or becomes less fit, the other one will take over or provide uh, what is needed to keep the other population uh, uh, going or to come back. And uh, But that kind of resilience is uh, not just among microbes uh, as a community. It, it, the, the host provides uh, some stability because the niche that the host creates also is uh, very important in uh, sort of stabilizing the conditions, whether it's nutrients, uh, motility, immune system. But there's this 
continuous dynamic interplay of environmental, dietary, you know, host and microbial factors that that impart the stability of uh, the microbiome. Now, uh, stability can relate to what we call diversity, uh, you know, how many flavors you have in that population. But, uh, and, and people then equate diversity to a healthy microbiome. Uh, but I argue that that is not the right definition of a healthy microbiome. Uh, you know, we have people walking around who are perfectly healthy and they have low diversity microbiome compared to another person uh, who uh, also is healthy would ha- who would have a more diverse microbiome. So I don't think diversity defines uh, a healthy microbiome. And well, now you might ask me, well, what of, defines a... Right. Pardon? That's what I was going to ask you. Diversity of... of strains probably means nothing. It's the metabolomics of it or, you know, the functionality of it. Yeah, I I think that diversity is uh, overrated. Uh, I, you do need some diversity. I, I, I have to concede that. But it comes back to, like, the, the baseball team analogy. You need nine players to play the game. If you have, uh, you know, 50 players, uh, players on the bench who can play those positions, yeah, it's great. Uh, it gives you a little bit more diversity or a little more flexibility if somebody is injured. But there's a certain point where you don't need 10 people who play first base. Diversity is uh, is good, but you don't need 10 uh, backups for first base. You could probably get away with just one backup. And so having a lot of diversity uh, doesn't mean that it's you're healthier. Um, and so I think that's an important principle. Uh, now, that ha- that being said, I, I, I think it, uh, defining what a healthy microbiome is a very, very elusive target. I, I don't really know how to de- define it. I'm beginning to think about ways to define a healthy microbiome, but I don't think it's through di- uh, defining di- diversity. Why would um, why would someone have unnecessary excessive diversity in the first place? If you think about it, like what would cause that? So, you know, okay, maybe no correlation to health, but like what happens, you know, like remember the uh, the show Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern, he goes around the world eating foods. And I, I yeah. you know, when I watched that show, I thought, man, this guy must have the most diverse microbiome on earth. <laughs> yes, he must have an iron stomach. Some of the stuff I've seen him eat, I, I, yeah. I just can't imagine uh, could be good for you. Well, what do you but, think um, is happening? It would be interesting. It would be interesting to see what his microbiome looks like. But I, I, I would say that there's a certain point where the the ecological niche, whether it's in the lung, gut, skin, just can't support that many uh, types of microbes. And um, frankly, I think that uh, uh, what I would consider a healthy microbiome is probably something that is necessary, um, a microbe, you know, people call it a keystone or foundational microbe that sort of is like the uh, tall trees in an Amazon rainforest, for example. You know, if you don't, 
if you cut down the tall trees in, in the rainforest, everything underneath it dies because that ecosystem depends on the the uh, the shade and, and retention of moisture uh, of these tall trees. So these are foundational uh, uh, microbes that, if they're there, they often provide the nurturing environment or they contribute to the nurturing environment that then brings in uh, other types of microbes to, to sort of form a community. Now, if you wipe those out, those, those foundational strains, I think that uh, you can damage the microbiome. So I would probably say that those are uh, healthy in a healthy individual. You know, that being said, it, you know, uh, states of health and disease, they're, 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 uh, the same ecological principles apply to both cases. Uh, uh, stability uh, is not a definition of, uh, of a healthy microbiome because in, let's say, an inflammation-associated dysbiosis, uh, that's stable too. That's that's probably why many diseases like inflammatory bowel diseases are chronic. It, 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 you, there's just this uh, population uh, that uh, probably uh, represents uh, a lot of players in there, a lot of microbes in there that are co- contributing to the inflammatory process. But they've developed some stability. They they sort of have developed a shield so that normal, healthy microbes can't come in and replace them. But uh, they, they do this because they take advantage of the host. They, they, are, they, they, are, they often are, uh, activate the immune system, they're pro-inflammatory, but they want to keep that environment going because that favors their, their fitness, their, their own populations. And uh, I think that that is really um, the basis of uh, many chronic disorders that we see that have a microbiome basis to it. Well, it's a very complicated story, but they're really super fascinating. So um, I know we're short on time. Last, last question. So what, what do you think is, is uh, on the edge of breakthrough in terms of understanding either through your lab or, you know, other labs you've seen out there? Anything close? Yeah, I, I think that um, there, uh, well, I, I don't know that we've made any breakthroughs yet, but I think we're working on some important questions. And um, so I, I'm a physician scientist. I, 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 most of my questions have some relevance to human health and disease. Uh, but in order to understand uh, uh, what the microbial population uh, is doing in the context of health and disease, I think we have to understand fundamental principles of how microbial communities come together, what makes them stable, what makes them resilient, uh, you know, and, and that is where I think our lab is, uh, we're, we're trying to push that type of discovery. And why, why that is important is uh, if you look at most probiotics, for instance, um, most of them don't really work. Uh, they 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 don't they they don't engraft uh, in uh, when you ingest these probiotics. They don't stick around. They, you can't detect them in the stool, for example. 
And 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 so this is an example of how a non-resident microbe has a hard time breaking into an established community that already has formed a network that's very stable and very resilient. That network is always going to resist any newcomer. So if you understand that principle, then the thing to do is that you figure out a way where you can sort of reset that established community, whatever the interactome is among those microbes. If you can perturb it, Let's say with antibiotics, with a brief course of antibiotics, you you sort of reset the stage. Then I think the chances of a probiotic or fecal microbial transplant is more likely to engraft and be sustainable. Okay, so if you look at uh, most of the FMT studies, uh, you know a lot of the ones that are reported in the literature are a single FMT uh, application. Others have done, uh, more recently, sequential FMT applications, but they try to do it on top of what, the, what is already there. Now, it works for C. diff because what happened in C. diff is that you've wiped out all the rest of the micros. There's very little that can compete with it. C. diff is a wimp. It can't compete against uh, uh, a whole population of microbes. But if you look at IBD, C. diff uh, is there just in low amounts, right? And when people are sick, it just goes into predominance. It's not like yeah, it's not there at all. because it has no competitors. It has no competitors. But it is normally it 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 it's outcompeted by other types of microbes. It's it like I say, it's a wimp. Um, but it's if funny. it's by itself, it's flourishing and it's causing its uh, effects. But you put in a complex microbiome, an FMT, it, it will disappear. Mm, okay. Gotcha. Okay. And, well, very good. And that's why, that's why FMT is, works in T-diff. You know, we, we used to just give more and more antibiotics. I think that just made the, the situation worse because you, you basically need that uh, normal microbiota to come back. But if you keep on giving antibiotics to kill the C-diff, the C. diff goes into a spore form and, and then becomes resistant to the antibiotic, and it waits well, it out until you stop the antibiotics, and then it'll come back. It seems like a better protocol would be, this is my theory, sequence someone on a regular basis, you know, once every six months or, you know, and then when they get sick, sequence them again and see what's changed, and then utilize a series of selective um, antibiotics. You know, either from phages or from you know license or whatever it is, and restore their 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 previous bacterial state in their gut by doing so. Yeah, I think that that something like that. Uh, you know, so that's what we're working on right now. Uh, we're trying to uh, sort of break this the uh, the stability and resilience of population, so that when you introduce new uh, microbes. Uh, they're part of the reformation of the uh, of the microbiome, and they get integrated into the um, the microbiome, and they're they're essentially accepted. Uh, so uh, I think that this is really in part uh, the the way that we're going to make probiotics or FMT more um, 
effective and, and, uh, and sustainable. Um, so, Makes sense. But, but there are other ways to do it. But I, I, I would just say that uh, these are the types of things that we're working on because our group is really interested in understanding uh, how we can uh, or what we can learn from the microbiome in order to develop better biomarkers of, let's say, uh, risk for disease or as monitors of health. Uh, we're interested in uh, uh, looking at microbes and uh, their metabolites and products that they make, small molecules that they make, that may have uh, biotherapeutic properties. And so I think that uh, there's a lot of discovery to be made. Um, to me, the, the microbiome of the gut is like the Amazon rainforest. There's a lot of discovery there, and some of that discovery can be leveraged to, to you know, developing uh, new therapeutics or new ways to prevent disease. Well, that's great. I mean, it's awesome, it's complex, and it's uh, a, a big fundament of our health. So, so yeah. Eugene, what, what's the best way for people to learn more? I mean, there's so much to learn, but how can they get in contact or look at HMP1 or your current work? Well, uh you know, we we have a website. Uh, I don't know, remember the link to it, but that there, we've also started. Uh, you know, I started this um, program at the University of Chicago called the Microbiome Medicine Program, and uh, it actually is focused on exactly what I just told you about. You know, developing biomarkers and um, uh, developing a library of quote, healthy strains uh, and looking at uh, small molecules made by these uh, microbes uh, that might have therapeutic uh, benefit. But my, my feeling is that uh, uh, microbiome medicine is going to be a discipline in medicine eventually. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, micro, the gut microbiome is another organ of your body. It, it, it uh, is absolutely essential uh, for your health. It, it uh, communicates uh, to other organ systems and processes in your body. You can transplant it from one individual to another, and it can be rejected if the match is not good by, that, the, by the recipient. So it's an organ in every uh, way that you would define in an organ. So I think what, what we're going to see is... Uh, sort of this microbiome medicine, it, just like we see hepatology, uh, as, you know, uh, the the liver as an organ that we uh, a discipline is built around, or uh, you know, pulmonary uh, or kidney. Uh, it, the microbiome, particularly the gut microbiome, is going to be just like that. They're going to be experts. They're going to be. Uh, physicians that uh, really understand and maybe practice microbiome medicine. Well, that, that's so, my yeah. prediction. That's my prediction. Well, very good. Well, Eugene, thank you for coming. It's been a really great call. I appreciate speaking. Well, with you. my pleasure. Uh, it's fun talking with you. Forget frequently asked questions, common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice? 
from a real genius. 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond and become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in fields such as sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Get ready. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.